Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. The Gaelic Football Championship is upon us and today this studio turns into a laboratory as we put on our lab coats, take out our microscope and observe at first hand that most unusual and unknowable of creatures, revered, at once revered and reviled by true Gales around the country. I speak, of course, of the senior inter-county manager. Hi there, thanks for listening to Monday. Hello there, Dr. McDevitt. How are you? Not too bad. Professor McDevitt. This particular species of manager we've chosen today is one Keon O'Neill of Kildare. We're going to crack Keon open, spread him out on the Petri dish. You brought the Petri dish today, Ken, right? Um, why are we putting him in the Petri dish? To examine him. We must Seems. crush him. Oh, no. Well, I was thinking more of the pestle and mortar there. Pestle and mortar is a kitchen implement. Well, well no, but isn't that what you, you crush powders... And then you put that under the Petri dish? Isn't that what you do? Well, we better work this out soon. Petri- it's going to be in soon. How are you going to Petri dish is a thing to grow a culture of something in. It's like... Yeah, a- he's growing the culture of Kildare football, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, fair enough. I mean, I should, I should just go along. I should just agree. I shouldn't try and nitpick with these things. Mm. I mean, it's not, strictly speaking, a scientific experiment. Mm. It's really more of a, how shall I describe this, sports interview. <laughs> it is a bit with, more like that one. With Keen O'Neill, yeah. but, you know. He's in the intriguing position, Keen O'Neill, of being fairly new to management. This is his second season with Kildare. But a veteran and somebody who I think is going to be able to give us a good insight into inter-county football at the very top level. He's been involved in it. Well, not just football, hurling as well. Yeah. He's involved with tip, wasn't he, back in the yeah, I mean, it, it's, Liam Sheedy days? Yeah, it's hard to, to, to say really in a lot of ways. But he's basically a, a fixture on the sideline in Crow Park in August and September for the last nearly 10 years while at the same time being a bit of a newbie when it comes to inter-county management. So he did four years with the Tipperary hurling team uh, including winning the All-Ireland under Liam Sheedy in 2010. Now his work with Tipperary was uh, as you know, we'll get into in a minute. He was more of a strength and conditioning uh, coach with Tipperary at that time. He'd done some work with Limerick before that as well. Yeah, so it was a physical trainer kind of yeah. deal at the time. Yeah, and then he moved to Mayo for a year under James Horn, where he was a like a, fo- a football coach, uh, and then had uh, three years with the Kerry Footballers and won the All Ireland in 2014 as well. So you're dealing with a guy who's mm. won All Irelands at hurling and football uh, in the last whatever seven years. Uh, but took over his native county of Kildare in 2015. And that's the idea, really. I mean, we've seen it in so many sports. Like, uh, you know, Joe Schmidt was a number two before he became a number one. And that was seen as a, you know, how do you grade his, the level of his achievement at Claremont over when he's a number two? I mean, as a number two, is maybe as we've seen under Alex Ferguson, uh, a person that gets a lot of credit when things go right, maybe, and then doesn't have to take all of the nonsense and abuse that, the, that a number one has to take. So that whole idea of becoming uh, the guy with the target on his back uh, 
uh, after years of being the you know the, oh this this guy's the secret to you know Mayo's success or Kerry's success. I mean, you hear it actually quite a bit in the GA as well. Like Donny Buckley has done loads of really good work with a variety of teams, taking up where Keane O'Neill left in Mayo as well. And it's kind of you know it's it's hard to quantify the exact level of uh, influence that they've had. But I mean, if you talk to the Tipperary hurlers or you talk to the Kerry footballers or even the Mayo footballers, you know, you only hear unbelievably good things about Keane O'Neill. So there was a lot of uh, pressure on him, but also a lot of goodwill towards him as he took as the a coach. Oh, as, as a, took their manager, because yeah. as a coach, it it's I would, I would have thought it's reasonably easy to be quite focused. It's very clear what you're doing on what you need to do to make these players better and and to to come up with strategies. And obviously, you're taking instruction from your manager and so on. As a manager, particularly just starting out at inter county level, I would say it's completely different and a lot more a lot more complex, difficult, time consuming. And although so as well as just being the one with the target on the back on your back, it's just a the job more is stressful way bigger job. as well. Yeah, yeah I mean the job. role is pretty well defined if you're a coach. I mean you try and devise a style of playing that suits the players that you have, uh, and you set up training drills that help you achieve that style of play. I mean, with as a manager, you have to do you, you're responsible for all of that, but you're also responsible for literally everything else as well. Um, be that organizational hires of coaches or of physios or whatever. I mean, the whole thing, it just it literally never ends. So that's the that's kind of the interesting thing. He's uh, had successful promotions with Kildare uh, from Division 3 to Division 2 in 2016 and one promotion to Division 1 earlier this year. So if you're looking at teams, and I mean, you know, this is it now. We're into the, the week where all of the championship previews happen. Uh, if you're looking for teams to break out and get into an Ireland quarterfinal and maybe even get into an Ireland semi-final. The two teams that have had good good springs in Division 2 are a pretty good place to look. And those two teams this year are Kildare and Galway. And you could make an argument for both of them to say, even more so than other teams that have recently been promoted from Division 2 to Division 1, those two counties have enough going for them to suggest that they should be playing football in August. Greg Keane O'Neill will be in studio in a couple of moments. World Service members, thanks so much for all the great messages about last Friday's Players' Chair episode with Richie Sadler and Niall Quinn. I think you seem to appreciate how much of themselves the two of them gave to the conversation. If you're not a World Service member, you may not have any idea what I'm talking about. So here's a taster. just hated life, hated my existence. And, and people then wanted to talk to me about it and I didn't like speaking to people. I didn't want to answer the phone. Sky TV rang up, Jeff Shreves went, come on over and do a game, and, and I wouldn't go. And then eventually I went to the airport and came home and told them there was a problem with the flight and didn't get on the flight. You know, it, it was just, I got into a real negative place for some... As in you made that up, that yeah, there was a problem? Yeah, Why absolutely. didn't you go? I just didn't want to be near a football ground. I didn't feel I belonged. I felt an outsider. But I would still be very wary of the new modern young player looking at me going, who the hell does he think he is? If you would have kept your head down and kept out of sight? I, I would still do it to a point today. The worst it got for me, I retired in the first week of September. By December, I had contacted a solicitor. I had started writing a will. I lived in a house with a swimming pool in the backyard. My plan was to jump in there and not jump and not get out. I was living with a friend and a girlfriend, both Irish, and I somehow manipulated my girlfriend into moving back to Dublin while staying together as a couple. Obviously, I wasn't going to discuss her with her what was going on in my head. And Exactly like what you said earlier, I just hated my life and I, 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 I had absolutely no concept of how things would get better than they were. If you're a World Service member and have yet to listen in to Friday's Incredible Players Chair with Niall Quinn, presented by Richie Sadler, you can go and get it whenever you fancy. It's secondcaptains.com or on your podcast player of choice. If you're listening today as a non-member, the only way you can hear the interview or any of our World Service programming is to join up. So you will get access to all our archive, including all past episodes of the Players Chair. Obviously, our daily shows will all be available to you. Five euro plus fat a month for independent commercial free programming. And if that wasn't all deep and meaningful enough for you between Richie and Quinn, well, that was a deep and meaningful part of it, I guess. Niall also found the time, though, to fire out a couple of pretty funny stories, including this one of his first full match back playing GA after returning from England. He was handed the much-coveted number 14 jersey for Eadstown Junior C Gaelic football team in Kildare. Fair Kildare theme to this show today. The opponents were Salins, who apparently struggled to cope with Quinny's physical presence as they hauled him down for three penalties in the course of the game. 
I got brought down for the first penalty. I looked around and everyone had gone back about 50 yards, so I knew I had to take the penalty. Anyway, I scored. It was a young lad in goal for Salins. And I scored the three penalties. The last penalty, their umpire threw the green flag at me and told me to get back to England, you diving bastard. Right? Right. <laughs> so, so that was the, you know, the, the, the memory in my head. And I got up and scored the third penalty. The final whistle went and there was a little bit of pushing and fighting and shoving going on. And, and I, as I would always do, swerved that looked for somebody to say hard luck to and I saw their goalkeeper and so I went over to him and I said listen geez hard luck there young fella there I'd say you'd like to have saved one of them and uh, he went uh, fuck off you prick you wouldn't take one against Spain ah <laughs> 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 uh, there you go that was Noel Queen it's, uh, regaling Richie with that tale I've had a look at that penalty shootout just today that 2002 shootout yeah. against Spain uh, not great if you recall it Quinny couldn't have done much worse than most of his teammates. Can you remember the Irish takers in the day again? Yeah, of course. Um, Give me the sequence of Irish penalty takers. Uh, the sequence, um, well, Robbie Keane. Yeah. Um, Scores. Uh, there was, it was Kilban, Holland, Connolly and Finnan. Yeah, Matt Holland stepped up to blast his off the bar and over. David Connolly side footed. Do they miss all three in the middle and score? Exactly, the, yeah. 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 So Finnan scored the last one to put a bit of pressure on Mendieta. But you know, Connolly's was the worst, I think. The, it was almost like an accidental Penenka. <laughs> <laughs> Just sort of chipped it gently in towards the middle, which is not what he was trying to do, I don't think. And Kilban's wasn't much better. Although, possibly the worst miss of all was Juan Fran for Spain. Mm. Pulled one wide with his, with, with his left foot, which is just... Ugh. It always it looks terrible, that one. Yeah. Uh, Valeron, the other one. Missed. Oh, I missed one as well, yeah. Qu- Quinn apparently had taken one training the day before and missed it, which is never going to fill you full of confidence. So when Mick McCarthy was going around asking, who fancies it? Yeah. Quinn said, mm, I'll take one if you're stuck. And Mick says, okay, we've got five, but you could be one of the sudden deaths. So it was between Quinn and Mark Kinsler for sudden death. Uh, and Quinn, in the interview I, I saw today, was said that as he saw, weirdly, as his teammates started missing, he started feeling all... You know, like the leader, I suppose that he, he would have been. Mm. I, I'm pretty confident I can go up and score, but it never got to that because unfortunately, Mendieta I was, his I was there. Um, uh, of course, you were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd let you know. <laughs> You've got no further. I mean, if you were watching on TV, you would have seen it just as well. But I, I'm just putting it on the record. I, I was there. I noticed eventually that Spain only had ten men. Not immediately, though. I wasn't close enough to the technical area to hear. Poor David Albelda screaming, screaming in agony as he clutched his um, twisted testicle, which I believe was the injury that forced forced him off testicular torsion. Mm. You weren't it's, the only one who had missed that particular nugget of information, though. Mick McCarthy, yeah, although I mean, given that Albelda was lying on the ground six or seven meters away, screaming in agony, he might have been expected to notice, but uh, he was focused so intensely on the game that uh, that uh, Albelda's plight didn't register. Our guest in studio today has been, I suppose, quietly going about his business for a decade or so, coaching teams to All-Ireland titles in football and hurling. Apparently, in need of a bit more stress in his life, he finally took the plunge last year and accepted his first inter-county management job. Kildare manager Keane O'Neill, thanks for making it in. How are you doing, boys? Is that a fair summation of it, that the, <laughs> you, you're... In stress the levels just weren't s- enough. Stress levels weren't high enough for you. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's, uh, I don't think when you take a job on like that in inter-county management, you think of the stress. I think that's something that that fairly rapidly comes upon mm-hmm. you. Um, I think you do it for the love of the game, be it your own county or whoever you're working with. Um, but you do find out pretty quickly, you know, how stressful it can be. And But listen, that, that's only part of, the, part of the job. There's a huge amount of enjoyment, huge amount of, uh, you know, gratifying experiences working with players, young players in particular. And um, we have a very young squad at the moment. And uh, I think you've got to focus on the positives because you need to go into the job with your eyes wide open. And, and that's what I did, um, albeit it, it can be challenging at times. I suppose... What we would think would be that the big difference would be that you'd be answerable to everybody, essentially, in a, in a way that you're not necessarily, as as a coach, whether it's a successful or a, a not-so-successful year, as a coach, you can kind of maybe stay under the radar a little bit, whereas obviously as a manager, especially in your own county, I guess you'd be essentially answerable to everybody. Yeah, it's, it's it's almost dichotomous in many ways insofar as that sometimes when you have big victories and big performances, you know, everybody, bar the manager, can get uh, compliments at times. <laughs> but then when you have, uh, you know, very poor defeats, um, you're number one in the firing line. But uh, And that comes with the terrain and you know that. Uh, 
I think the most important thing is what goes on within the four walls of the dressing room and the training field. And uh, if you have that trust, you know, and that respect amongst the, the management, the backroom, the players, um, you know, that's what you need to get through the tough times and what really lifts you in the good times. Uh, you're the director of sport in the Cork Institute of Technology, which sounds like a pretty full-on role. How do you ma- manage to balance that with, obviously, the near enough full-time uh, you know, time constraints of being an inter-county manager? Yeah, listen, it's, it's very tough. It's very tough. Um, my role, you know, I'm very happy to be there. I'm in CIT four years now, um, this year, having spent 17 in UL. Um, it is tough, you know, we've over 600 students in my department, probably 25 staff. So there's a lot going on on a daily basis, especially this time of the year when you have exams. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to two things, really. Time management is one and, how, you know, how you deal with your own time and how you uh, make up the hours in the day. Um, and obviously a key thing is the support from your workplace. And I, I think every player and manager um, alike will agree that if you have a support structure there from work, whereby they know you need to leave work sometimes, but on the basis that you make up those hours other times, um, I, I think it does work. Um, the third thing for me is obviously using that time on the road. You know, it could be two and a half hours. There was a crash in the tunnel yesterday. Right. So it took me nearly three hours, two and a half, three, to get to Kildare from Cork. But you'd be home in a lot less than that. And it's how you're productive in the car in those in those hours. Is uh, How do you mean? How do you mean productive in the car? What can you do there? Um, well, pre, pre-session, pre I use that time to, to talk to the management, talk to the backroom, planning, preparing things for the session. Um, players, you know, some guys, um, For at the moment, we've got 11 guys doing exams because we're that young. So you can use that time to chat to those fellas if you're giving them the night off to study or if you have injured players, that type of thing. Um, on the way home, when it's it's most often too late to call people, um, I use my dictaphone a lot, you know, so I just I tap everything into that. Um, so the next morning when I'm back in work, I can, you know, transcribe what I need to or maybe just try and remember, you know, some of the core points in the previous night's session. So it's something I've developed over the years. And um, when I was in Mayo, which was a three, three and a half hour journey at times, um, that's when I really started to use that kind of that process. Yeah, that's gas. That's like for any of us who drive in the car and literally hours would go by and you'd just be looking. What have I been thinking or doing in the time it's taken me to get from Dublin to like Atlone or something? I find myself all the time doing that. It's like, what, what have I been thinking? That, okay, so this is, this is how uh, successful people work it. Okay, that's good. Yeah. That's good and I listen to the second captains as well. <laughs> and, and, well yeah. the one thing you haven't mentioned there is your life outside of work. Essentially, that's two jobs. Mm. What sort of impact does that have on your day-to-day life ah, it is it's tough it's tough you know and I said earlier this year you know that probably when you have the three big things which is your home life you know yeah. you have your work your job and then you have Kildare it, it's probably the the family side of things you know my wife Tammy who suffers the most um, simply because you, you do when, when you're in there uh, I think Noel Connors referred to it last week in an article from Waterford it's a bubble and it is a bubble mm-hmm. I mean you have to be uniquely selfish in so many ways in order to prepare teams or to be an elite athlete um, just in that moment, you know. Um, and you have to be that way in my role because it's not just 34 players on the panel. It's the other two boys, Roly and End, and the management. And then you have another 10 or 12 in the back room. You have the county board. You have the Clare Supporters Club. You have the fans. So you have all of those different kind of factions pulling out of you, for want of a better term. Um, so when you do actually get home, you know, I'm just flat. You're absolutely wrecked. Not to mention what happens in work, you know. Um, so so your wife must be pretty understanding then. Um, she's getting there. <laughs> she's getting there. In fairness to Tammy, she she was not involved in sport at all. Right. Um, her, her background is music and singing. Um, so she does understand performance and the stress is associated with that. But um, no, she, she had a rude awakening because um, when she moved down to Limerick from home, from Kildare, it's the year I took up the Mayo job. So I literally was never there. Um, but we, it was tough. I'll, I'll be honest, it was tough. That year was a make or break year for us. Uh, we're married now, <laughs> thankfully. But um, that year was make or break because she would no background. She didn't understand anything about sport, not to mind seven-hour round trips up the country, you know. Um, but we worked it out over the years. And um, if anything, it's actually easier being in Kildare because she's from Newbridge as well. So when we're home and I'm up there for three or four days, at least she has family there. She has her friends, you know, whereas be it um, Kerry or Mayo, it was very different because when I was gone, there was no one down there that she could connect with. Um, although that, that was different in Kerry, they were brilliant, you know, to her when we were down there. Mm. Yeah, it, it, that's interesting, though, that if she comes from a musical background, maybe there is something there in that she would at least understand the uh, the idea of loving something enough to make like a lot of sacrifices for it and maybe at at some level 
you know, coming to a, uh, an understanding at least that, right, there are some things in life that aren't work, that aren't family, but are still really important and uh, getting a sense of fulfilment out of something like that. Yeah, there is. I mean, she, she does get it and she's unbelievably supportive, you know, in the bad days, you know, when matches don't go well and things aren't going well. But in the build up, you know, I don't think anyone could understand unless you're in the bubble you know, why you're so detached from reality and so single-minded and uniquely focused on, you know, on that weekend. So in fairness, in the bad times, she's, she's absolutely brilliant. I think the big difference for us this year, believe it or not, and it's, it kind of makes me laugh, is that we got a dog and <laughs> a little Milo. And to be honest, it's actually brought us closer because when I come home after a, after a rubbish session or a bad day at work, you know, it's, it's just us and the dog. And before it would be us and a very quiet room and yeah, some yeah. rubbish on TV, you know. So that actually has helped us a lot. Nothing got to do with Kildare, but just the fact that it's actually brought us closer with the challenges of being involved with, uh, with the senior football team. You've been involved with some pretty interesting teams between the Tip Hurlers, you've mentioned Kerry and Mayo there. Are they very different jobs in each case? Is there a different mindset that you have to tap into in Kildare, say, compared to somewhere like Kerry where the success would have been expected? Um, yeah, I mean, they were all brilliant experiences. And even the two years I was uh, there with Limerick with Mickey Ned, I mean, mm. they were great experiences because that was my start, if you like, at, at that level. Um, I think how they were different for me was the nature of the role changed um, in many of them. So with Tip, um, I had a really strong bond with the players and anyone who's involved in teams will know this. Once you're involved in management and selection, it is very different in terms of the bond and the relationship you can have with players because of that, if you want to call it professional distance. When I was with Tip, you know, my, my, my primary focus was strength, conditioning, athletic performance. I didn't pick the team. Mm -hmm. So you actually, you got very close with players, you know, and I still am closer with Tip players than any other because they knew, you know, that I wasn't involved in selection. So that barrier, that awkwardness wasn't there. Uh, once you're with my own Kerry, where I was in a coaching capacity and, and as a selector, you know, you need that boundary as such, because ultimately you need to make big decisions and decisions that are going to, you know, for a short term, put strains on relationships if, if guys aren't happy. Um, so that does modify it a small bit, you know, but you still have that good bond. And then you jump into management and ultimately the book stops with you. Mm. And, and that's just another level up again. And I don't think unless you've been in each of those roles that you actually will understand what I'm saying. Um, it, it, you're the most distant as a manager, you know, and you have to be um, because of the nature of your role. But um, I think the key thing, it comes back to the respect, you notice there between everyone involved. And I've been lucky with every team I've been involved in. They've been brilliant players, you know, fantastic groups to work with, super managements and the friendships that I've formed there, including the ones at President Kildare, um, to be with me till you know till the end. There's a certain, I don't know if you would call it cockiness, possibly not having worked with these people, but if you're involved as a Kerry footballer or a tip hurler, you're you certainly have an expectation that you're going to win or that you can win. I'm not using that as a, a negative necessarily. Is that something that you, when you went back to Kildare, have to try to drive into the Kildare players that? they should be able to have, there's no reason they shouldn't believe in the same way as a tip hurler might or a carry footballer might. Yeah, I, I think that mindset, it's, it's a really interesting one because, um, you know, one of, the, one of the, the most gratifying things about the, the journey with tip was that although tip, you know, Moria should always be up there at the top, you know, for many years in the mid noughties, really going back to zero one, they didn't have the success that the county felt they should have. Um, and then when Liam came in and brought all of us in with them, um, that changed very quickly. There was Munster titles every year, obviously in All-Ireland. There was a league in the first year. Um, so it was almost like they felt they were back where they belonged and where they should have been. Um, and, and they felt that should have been the way. Similarly in Kerry, every year, if you're not in a final and not mm. winning one, you know, it's deemed a failure. But that being said, up until 2014, you know, Kerry hadn't won an All-Ireland since 09. You know, so if, if you think of it, if, if that All-Ireland wasn't achieved then, we're in 2017 now. That, that's a long period for Kerry not to have an All-Ireland. And that's why, you know, Eamon, you know, gets the credit but should get even more because what was achieved in that year, in my opinion, was, was phenomenal considering the transition, that cliched word that was going on in Kerry. Um, in Kildare, there's been what you might call relative success. Relative success for me was getting to All-Ireland quarterfinals but not really winning anything as such. Um, not Leinster, Dublin were so dominant. Um, even within those years, you know, Every time a Division One team 
came up unfortunately they just weren't able to get over the line so it was relative success and it's our job now to start beating top teams consistently Division 1 next year will help that but um, definitely started to compete at, at Leinster final Leinster championship level Yeah you've you've earned successive promotions so from Division 3 last year to Division 2 and then Division 2 to Division 1 this year uh, do you think the promotion is really important just from the point of view of you know talking to your players and saying that right you're a top 8 county so quite apart even from just winning the promotion in from a mindset point of view talking to your players and saying right you're a division 1 footballer now there's no you know there, there's there's nowhere to hide now you know you you're in division 1 you're expected to get to to beat teams that are at your level and you know and and move on from there effectively that the 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 status of division 1 is is as important as playing in division 1 next year I, I, I've thought about this a lot and a lot of people say it in, you know, just in, in chatting and commentary. I don't think that's going to have the impact you know, that you mentioned until next year when we're physically in Division 1. Right. Um, and, and that's certainly how we've approached it in the Championship because um, you know, last year <clears throat> we, we, we got caught you know, in Leinster. And we, we had an average Division 3 campaign. We comfortably got through to promotion. Didn't perform in a league final, you know, irrespective of being a Division 2 team the next year. You know, we never kicked on for, for the Leinster Championship. And this year, I feel it's the same. It was a much better campaign because there was more satisfaction in the victories. We were winning last year, but we weren't really performing. Um, this year, we've been winning, but playing well. You know, Mead, Cork, Fermanagh in particular. Um, so I think you got to park that and kind of, you know, take the gratification of being promoted for next year but get back to work for the championship because there really are two different competitions um, Westmead being the most obvious example of that where they've unfortunately dropped from division to division yet have been in the last two Leinster finals you know so um, I think if you start to trade off your league form coming into championship you could get caught very very quickly so for us one game at a time new competition um, now the club championship is over after this weekend in Kildare we kind of have a clear focus into, into Leinster you must be pretty excited about the potential within the county, I, I would imagine, given that there are particularly maybe, uh, uh, you know, out west there are a lot of counties who struggle to find ways for everyone to train together. You're quite close to Dublin, I'd imagine <coughs> that that can be advantageous. Decent population, we know how much Kildare people can get behind a team if they're going well. There seems to be a lot there that, that you can draw on without putting too much pressure on yourself. Uh, would, would, I don't know if you have stated aims or if you state them publicly, but how far do you think you can go with this Kildare team? I think it's a really exciting time, you know, in Kildare at the moment. I think um, they're starting to reap the the benefits, you know, of the last number of years, the work that's been put in at underage level. Um, a lot of it kicked off by, by Brian, Brian Murphy. You know, Brian himself has, has done huge work, you know, for many, many years. And he, he's got some trade back in terms of, you know, Leinster Minor 21s. He's been very competitive there. But he really has been the driving force. Um, and there's been many more working with him on that. Um, and it's now that age grade is starting to step up. Um, ironically, the core of our team would have been the minor team of 2010, which is the year that I worked with, with Kildare, just helping out. You know the way it is. You come mm. back and do a session or two, and, and then Murphy gets you in, and you end up staying there <laughs> for the sudden. year. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's what happened, because obviously that's, that's, that was also a good year for, for Tip. Um, but eight or nine of that team, which I, I predicted at the time, you know, are going to do a lot of serious work with Kildare, are now the core of our team. And we've another, you know, we've we've eleven under twenty ones from this year and last year. So th that is there. The raw material is there. Um, but the key thing for me is, can we get them all on the pitch at the same time? And ultimately, that's what I feel cost us last year. We there was a lot of injuries, you know, like we didn't have Keith Cribben for the year. He had a cruciate ligament. Daniel Flynn was out for the year. Paul Cribben. Kevin Feely, who's been a standout player for us this year, was missing for the Westmead match. He got injured against Wexford. Um, the young guys coming through, the Ben McCormicks of the world, the Chris Healy's, none of them were there this year. So for me, this was year one of my management, you know, and, and, and that's not to just say, oh, well, that wasn't great, let's push it aside. I just feel the stars were aligning this year in terms of the squad, the management, the backroom, and, uh, you know, I think there's no reason why we shouldn't be optimistic and, and really setting, you know, strong targets for ourselves going forward. Do you have a completely defined way that you want football played or having coached so many teams and now involved as a manager... Do you have to adapt to the players that you have there or is there a sort of Pep Guardiola style slavish devotion to one way of playing football? Yeah, I, you know, I kind of, I get frustrated and I smile you sometimes when you hear the commentary, you know, from, 
from be it players, ex-players, so-called experts, um, there is no set defined play in, in a sport like Gaelic football whereby your squad is defined by the national boundaries or the county boundaries of where you're from. We don't have a transfer uh, season. We're not able to bring in players that will suit our style of play. And if you have a squad like Dublin have at the moment, well, that enables Jim to set out that game plan because he has the players. Um, and the same for Stephen, you know, and James for Foreman, Mayo, and obviously Eamon and Kerry and, and all these teams. If you have the players that fit the style you want to play, go for it. Mm. But sometimes it's not as easy as that. Mm. I mean, I remember the Kildare-Wexford game last year. You got a lot of criticism after that as well. But more generally, is the risk-reward ratio in Gaelic football, is that... Is that leaning too far towards defensive football at the moment, do you think? I think the reason it is that way is because there is such a significant gap between the top three and everyone else. That's my own thoughts now. You know, I think if, you know, more like hurling, you know, even though Kilkenny obviously have been so dominant in, in the late noughties, I think if there was more teams of a similar level, it might encourage other teams you know, to play, you know, maybe a more expansive way. But in Leinster, when you know, ultimately, if you're going to win Leinster, you need to beat Dublin, you know. Um, Munster, which has dropped a, a lot now, you know, carry our far away ahead of everyone else. You're going to have to beat them. Um, Connacht is slightly shifting now. I think teams have that in the back of their mind. And, and I put my hand up, you know, last year. Um, ultimately, I felt if we're going to win Leinster and we're going to play Dublin, we're going to meet them, we're going to need to start working on that, you know. Um, and defensively, we got it right last year in many ways. Our biggest downfall was we never got the transition from defence to attack right. I mean, coming into my job last year, at the frightening statistic that was thrown at me, which I wasn't aware of, was that in the last three matches in Crow Park Championship um, before last year, Kildare had conceded, I think it was 14 goals and 51 points in three matches. Mm. So a- apart from the fact that that was the literal scoreline, you can imagine the psychological damage that that inflicted on the players. And obviously I was involved in one of those matches with Kerry when we put seven goals past them. Mm. Um, and, and that wasn't a very pleasing day for me on an emotional level. Obviously it was on a coaching level. Um, so I knew what had been inflicted upon them in the previous years. So that's why we went so defensive initially. And I mean, we conceded eight, eight points in the first round. It was a horrendous match. You're right, Murph. Um, 9-8 we won. You know, it was awful. Um, but even in the Westmead match, which was more competitive, a match we should have won, um, we only conceded 13 points. So defensively, we were doing things right. We just didn't get our offensive game the way we wanted it. Yeah, and that's such an interesting point that you make about when teams feel that they're up against teams of a similar similar level, like Galway played Derry this year in Division 2, for instance, 5-15 to 2. That's right, yeah. Do you know, and like, I remember thinking, I'm not going to drive down to Galway to watch Derry because they're so defensive. Like, they're, like, you know, just terribly, terribly defensive. And you look at what Derry scored and conceded in Division 2 this year, it's, you know, cricket scores, yep. you know? Yeah. Um, and, like, that is such an interesting point. Like, that idea that, you know, it's not your job as Kildare manager to be a guardian of the game it's your job to try and beat Dublin and at the moment it doesn't Dublin's game plan doesn't change if Bernard Brogan you know you know god forbid gets injured and can't play for the rest of the year you know like it's not their game plan isn't dependent on three or four players like basically everyone else's game plan is whereas you you know you have you know brilliant footballers like Kevin Feely something like like the best player probably in division two this year I'd Mm -hmm. say uh if he gets injured, that ha- like you can't go out with the same game plan, you know. Without whereas Dublin can do whatever they like, you know. Dublin have a game plan and they can just put thirty players into that game plan, regardless of who they lose or who they have available. Yeah, I, I think it, a lot of it is down to the resources that you have. Um, for example, you know, Liam Kearns did a fantastic job last year with Tipperary, um, and and he he said it himself that they were so blessed to have very few injuries throughout the year. Mm. But if he had two or three injuries. It might have changed that season, you know, and he did brilliantly with the resources he had. So a lot of it does come down to resources. And then there's many other factors, you know, like your game plan, like your setup, like like the belief in the squad, you know. Um, and just one other thing on that before we get off it. I think very often people maybe don't understand and certainly don't under appreciate how difficult it is to break down a team with 14 men behind the ball. <laughs> I mean, it is. I, I was surprised with how Galway played this year, but it was very effective. Um, and I thought between the match in Galway and the last league match that 
where they were very defensive, 40 men behind mm. the ball, that things might change for the final because they played that match the way we played the previous week against Clare. Hoping not to lose it. Yeah, yeah with intrepidation yeah, yeah. because if you didn't lose, you were through, you know. Um, so I totally got that because we went through the same and snuck mm. out a, a narrow victory over Clare and Newbridge. Um, and then they played the same at Crow Park um, and once again did enough to win and fair play to them. And, you know, Kevin's doing brilliantly up there. But it is so hard. It is so hard to break down that many men behind the ball, especially when you're still one of those teams who are trying to find yourself and who are trying to develop a consistent platform, like like what a Dublin and a Kerry and a Mayo have, you know. So that that's the real secret there in, in terms of progressing. What you're talking about sounds to me quite a lot like the Jim McGuinness blueprint in Donegal. I don't know how... F- Closely, you follow what other coaches have done if that's mm. the way you do it but yeah. it seems like very much first year he went in it was defensive and, and pretty dour he'd probably say himself but as he said how, what am I supposed to go in and have them all shooting the lights out straight away he got the defensive side of it right and even though not everyone loved that Donegal team I think we, we did <laughs> it, I, I thought that team this, the All-Ireland winning team was incredible and put in some unbelievable performances and some great attacking performances as well is there a similarity there? I, I think so, in, ter- in terms of kind of the process, yeah. you know, and um, Jim was very smart about how he did it um, and did a fantastic job. But I think what got lost in that narrative over those years was Donegal had some fantastic players, did some of the best players in the country. And, you know, I was kind of disappointed for a couple of years just from a supporter looking in that some of those players didn't get the credit for their actual football ability and um, because it was almost all lost in the system. You know, they had some brilliant players. They couldn't have done what they did. And I was obviously coaching Mayo in 2012 when we were beaten in the final by Donegal. I mean, some of the individual performances were absolutely so top class. it was class. too much about McGuinness at the time, do you think? Um, well, whether it's about the gym or, or the system. Mm. You know, once again, for me, it comes back to resources. And the players are what made that happen. Jim devised the blueprint and coached it, obviously, brilliantly. But I think the players need to get more the credit very often in the game and, and like, not external yeah. factors. Yeah, and like as a coach, to see Paddy McGrath, cornerback, coming up, kicking points off his left foot at the age of 29 or 30 or whatever he was, yeah. like that's that's just brilliant coaching. And that's just that's work done by a player to improve on something that he wasn't able to do four or five <laughs> years ago. Like that's like that's what people should be applauding, not trying to denigrate the fact that they went out to win games a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. And the trust. I mean, for Paddy McGrath to do that, he had to have huge trust that someone had his back further down the pitch. The same with Thompson, the same with Frank McGlynn. I mean, their defenders scored probably the highest proportion of any defensive unit in the championship that year. But there had to be massive trust that if I leave the house here, someone has to mind the front door, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought the players in that squad were excellent that year. Your dual role, your, your job, your day job is quite interesting in that you get to see all these kids going to college who are also obsessed with their sport and you see this as a senior county manager as well. Is there, do you buy into the fear that there's too much goes into it at the expense of, particularly at the expense of people's careers that essentially they go to college, they often go to the college they want to go to to play football maybe rather than the academic side of it. They take whatever job is going and then at 29, 30 years of age they come out of it and all their mates have these brilliant careers and they're, and they're sort of starting from scratch. I mean, that's not everybody, but that, that seems to be the case for a lot of intercounty footballers at the moment. Um, I, I don't buy into that, no. personally. Um, and I see it from both ends. And I think if you're going to make big sweeping statements and general statements, you need to have the evidence to back it up. Um, and not this article where I was talking to a lad from a county team last week and this is what he said, you know. Um, I, I definitely think you're going to have some players who put their lives on hold and dedicate everything to that. But then you also have players who are stepping away um, for a year or two, you know, like Jack last year, like Rory or Carl. And we saw it yesterday there with um, Young McBrearty and Donegal, um, who are making those decisions. Not not too many people are talking about them. Tom um, Devine in Waterford as well. Absolutely. There's not, yeah. there's not many of them, though. That's, that's the odd one in the odd county. The, the vast majority of lads who go in at 20, 21 years of age to an inter-county panel, I would say, well, you'd know a lot more than I would on this. Their aim is to stay there and to prioritise their football, I would have thought, over their careers. Well, when you say there's not many, there's not many high-profile players because these stories, if you think, who are these players? Dublin, Donegal, Waterford. How many do you think are leaving Leitrim? How many are leaving um, Wexford? You know, we don't know because they don't hit the, you know, the national headlines. I had seven or eight players this year who felt that they had other commitments in the summer or whatever reason that we were looking at, you know, in pre-season. 
you know. Um, I'm sure in many other counties that's the same. I just think people like to sensationalise a couple of stories or an ex-player comes out with a story that felt he never would say it when he was playing, but now that he's retired, I chose teaching because, mm. you know. In many cases, there's a lot of reasons they chose that, you know, and, and it wasn't just football. Um, teaching is still going to be a nice job in 20 years' time when you're retired and you have your three months' holidays. Mm. It's still going to be a tough job during the year, and I'm a teacher by trade, so I, I get it, you know. Um, I do think the demands are higher than ever, don't get me wrong. I, re- I do, and I know firsthand. But that being said, I think footballers now are a lot more educated, you know, in many aspects of play, be it sports science, but support, you know, um, the whole social side of things. And I really think if they don't want to do it, they won't do it. And no more than a manager. Don't give out about it spending too much time. You know, you know what it's going to be. So Yeah, there's a choice. You're not, you're not yeah, as you said earlier. Abs- yeah. Absolutely. Do, do you see it as part of your role, though, as Kildare manager to facilitate that side of things for people to give them time off for <clears> exams or to to work with their with their bosses or whatever it takes for them? Or is that completely, look, that's your time. You sort that out. I need you here on a Tuesday night at seven o'clock. Yeah, no, I, I think that almost pastoral care role, you know, if I think every good manager, every top manager will have that. Um, it doesn't mean it's, it's going to win matches for them, but I think it'll certainly create a greater level of respect and trust and, and even empathy uh, between players and managers. Um, there's an old saying in education, if you want to teach Johnny French, you need to know French, but you need to know Johnny. Uh, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's one of the key things as a manager you need to do. You need to know your players on a level away from the football field and do whatever you can to support them and and, and and that's why, even in the context of, of Paddy Brophy coming on, a lot of people were, I felt they were almost trying to find me out, you know, by follow-up questions when I said the key thing for Paddy is that he needs to come home, assimilate back into his life, you know, he needs to get back into the whole mental, emotional, so, and people are saying social, emotional, I mean, ugh, it's just a bit of, you know, wish-wash stuff, but it's it's not. Because ultimately, if we want to get any football out of Paddy, if he feels he wants to come back this year, um, we want it to be long term and not just in for a few weeks and then he's burnt out because everything's coming at him. So I really meant that and I just felt a couple of people when I was saying it were were almost um, looking at me with a level of scepticism. But that idea, it, it does have a lot of merit because we have seen guys struggle. For every Kieran Kilkenny that comes back and sort of seamlessly fits back in, there's no guarantee guys come back from Australia having experienced a professional attitude and, you know, or a professional life as a professional sportsman and come back and bring that into a county scene and add to it. Like Tommy Walsh, for instance, you know, like, and it is, it's very true. We We would speak to Mike Quirk here quite a bit on the podcast. And he said that the best thing Tommy Walsh could have done when he came back was play with his club for six months, find out whether he still enjoys playing Gaelic football or not, and then go into Kerry. And like, that was kind of like, that's an interesting example that you know, you don't just get these athletes landed back on your plate and say, right, okay, well, I've been planning, you know, to put him back in at midfield for the last two years, and now he's back. I can just, it's like, put him seamlessly back into my team. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you need to understand, and you used uh, Kieran Kilkenny as an example there, it, it's very much relative. You know, it's relative to the person, to their mindset, to the setup they come back into. Um, um, you know, every case is different. In, in the case of Tommy, Tommy had potentially a career-ending injury, and people often forget that. Um, when he came back, let me tell you what he brought to the Kerry setup was an unbelievable um, level of professionalism, of leadership, um, a huge level of modesty and humility, considering he'd been away for those five years. Um, so, unfortunately, it didn't happen for him on the pitch. Um, but what he did in the background there, you know, was phenomenal. And people won't see that. Um, but he was a huge part in the in the success for the three years I was there anyways, you know. And it was unfortunate that it didn't happen. But if you think the injury he came back from, an, you know, an avulsion fracture, similar to what Paul O'Connell had, that that's a career-ending injury in many cases. But he's, he's still battled on, you know. All right, June 4th is the first day out, I think, Ian. So nice yeah. busy, another busy few weeks for you ahead of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Kildare, you know, will be a really tough team and a, and a tough ask for anyone if we've everyone fit and healthy and on the pitch. And we've been very unlucky in recent years, particularly last year. So if you have everyone there, you know, we, we'll be looking forward to championship and seeing what we can bring from league form into championship form. All right, well, we look forward to seeing it as well. Keir O'Neill, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. You just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player a baby. Coach!
Which is the game you wanted victory, but it didn't happen? What happened? I want victory for every game. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? Which is the game you wanted victory, but it didn't happen? What happened? Well, it's just the nervousness. You look frustrated on the pitch. Which is the game you wanted victory, but it didn't happen? What happened? You wanted victory. Well, I wanted victory. Which is the game you wanted victory, but it didn't happen? What happened? Where do you think you got it all wrong today? against them in the premiership and we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby. You cannot call a player a baby. Well, that was nice to get somebody who's actually in the middle of this whole madness of inter-county management yeah. and somebody who's coached a lot of the top counties. You know, He spent 10 years or so thinking of ways to coach these teams and now manage one. And He doesn't sound like a man who has a slavish devotion to trying to ruin the sport of Gaelic football by playing dour defensive football as a lot of these managers has and as he alluded to himself he's gotten criticised for in the past I mean, his actual explanation as to that game against Wexford that came up was an absolute stinker yeah. let's not sugarcoat that but the, I think he was pretty pretty reasonable in saying that his first priority was to come in and stop them stop his team shipping was it 14 goals and 51 points he said yeah. they conceded in the, in three, the three games at Crooker before that game yeah there's no point in really coming into a team like that and saying right we're going to shoot the light continue this you score 13 Seven goals, goals and we'll score we'll more yeah. yeah that's let's just batten down the hatches first and I suppose now the test is whether or not that they can actually yeah. can be more creative because that's the, the more difficult part I would say yeah and the, that point that he made about these teams not being defensive teams you know they did they don't want to play like that, you know, and we mentioned Division 2 and, you know, Derry, uh, you know, boring us to tears every summer in the in the Ulster Championship. But, you know, actually putting up huge scores in Division 2 this year because they were playing teams where every time they went out, they felt, right, OK, all things being equal here, I've got about a 50% chance of winning this game. So let's go out and express ourselves and, you know, not even play like mad Aussie Ardiles five up front type football but actually just play football just like on its merits play the game and go for it but I mean if you're playing in the Leinster Championship if you have two games before a potential Leinster final against Dublin which is what Kildare will have uh, do you use those two games to you know just play them on their merits and go for it or do you actually say right what can we learn about playing Dublin before we have to play Dublin, and that's like that's the that's the issue. And I mean, if you're if you talk about um, two tier championships or, or something like that, I mean, if if you're playing in the same championship as Dublin, you have to prepare to play Dublin. Yeah, uh, and it's the same with the weaker counties in Connacht against Mayo or in Munster against Kerry. Like you have to prepare to play these teams and not get humiliated when you play them, and that's what happens. And so in the league, you get coaches trying things playing to their strengths, you know, putting up big scores. But it, it it is, it's different. It has to be different in the championship. And like, that's, you know, it's just, I, I just felt that that was a really interesting point that he made and a real insight into how inter-county managers actually prepare their teams. And that's what, that, like, that's the thinking. That it, It's not, let's bore everyone to tears. I really enjoy this, you know, 10 men behind the ball. I really enjoy it. That's how I fervently believe Gaelic football can mm. move forward. That's not how I feel. But I'm not in this for the, you know, for the uh, uh, promotion of the game. I'm in it because I want to do things better than the last guy who was in this job. It's also not necessarily as simple as that. I'm doing this even though, you know, I'm putting in a defensive plan even though I feel that f- for... As a football fan, I'd rather be more attacking. In some cases, it, it's just that you feel that your players at that given... It's it's not even necessarily that you feel this is the way to win getting football mm. matches. It's that at this particular point in the evolution of your team, this is the best way to do it. And I suppose the best managers, as you know, as Keane said there, as long as you have like, top-quality players available or enough good-quality players available that you can play some sort of attacking football, the best managers... I, I think the days are kind of gone when you can just sit 14 men behind the ball and do any real damage in the championship. There has to be a little more to it than that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, you you are seeing that. I mean, you know, I I don't see any team playing negatively getting to the semi-finals of the Iron Championship. You know what I mean? I don't see any of them winning provincial titles. So, you know, after, you know, 
it, it is swings and roundabouts, and it is coming back around, I think, to, you know, uh, imaginative forward play getting rewarded with wins as opposed to getting rewarded with blood, but nothing else. Uh, and I think actually that this summer, it's been weird. I've read quite a few previews. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you picked up the Irish Indo today, but <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it's not... A, if if you were reading that preview, uh, this the, the supplement they put out, I don't know that you would go to a game until the middle of August. Why? I mean, just the level of uh, downbeat assessments of what's going to happen in the next three months in both hurling and football. I mean... I, I just don't get it. Well, I there mean, are a lot of bad games. and the, There are loads of bad games. Of course there are, but there's going to be seven or eight good games yeah, in the can, next eight weeks. It can still be a good day, even if it's a bad game, man. You're losing sight of what it's all about. Go on. Is there an unscripted fair view on the way here? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, <laughs> like, for instance, in the next, in the next yeah. four weeks, there's Cork Tipperary in Hurling, uh, Wexford against Kilkenny in front of a sell out crowd in Wexford Park as long as Wexford do the decent thing and uh, win their quarterfinal uh, Galway against Mayo and Salt Hill like I don't know what other people want I, like, I've, but sure just... it doesn't even have to be about those so called blue ribbon occasions mm-hmm. it's just about enjoying the game for the love of coming the game coming together shortening and the enjoying, summer enjoying walking the down the middle of the road and to hell with the traffic behind you, because God damn it, it's championship day. Yeah, okay, I, don't, I, don't need, I don't need to explain. Go this along, to you. go along with your friends, with your family. You know, out in the fresh air. Oh yeah. You know what more could you have? Really... The dinnerette by half eleven. That's <laughs> <laughs> what it's all about, Ken. <laughs> is is that all really, about? Is that is that a thing? Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a thing for for a certain type of GA columnist Ken yes yes it is <laughs> if you're not yet a member of the Second Captain's World Service and you want to hear Richie's Players Chair with Niall Quinn or Ken's brilliant recent politics podcast on Russia and lots more besides all of that's available on secondcaptains.com just go there for all the details on how to join up thanks very much Kieran. thanks very much Ken thank, enjoyed you, that. thank you thank you thank you Kieran. thank you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.